Good morning. Welcome to St. Saviors. It's the first Sunday of Advent in this season when the days are shortening and it's getting colder. It reminds us that um, uh, we're reflecting and we're reflecting on the season going by and waiting expectantly for this new season when Jesus is born and the world changes. I sense the excitement of so much of that change already uh, in our lives, the life of the church, and it can be challenging to sit in this time of expectancy, of waiting and reflection. I just would continue to encourage us to do that in a prayerful way and together. You know, seek out someone to pray with this week. It'd be really good. You know, this text, uh, as we look at it today, seems quite unusual and um, perhaps not the most encouraging text you could think of in preparation of Christmas. But it's, I've chosen it from the lectionary. It's a traditional Advent text, and I think it really speaks to us and where we are at the, at the moment, uh, in the life of the nation in particular, and in the life of the world. You know, it's been a tough year. And the historical setting that Isaiah is describing here is in some way so similar to what we've been going through in the world. You know, the, the Israelites had just come out of Babylonian captivity. They'd been driven from their homeland, from Jerusalem, from Judah, sent into slavery in Babylon, and they had been uh, freed, and they're coming back home to, to rebuild, to, to reconnect their families, to rebuild the temple. And that's what Isaiah is describing in this text. But you see, he goes on to describe there's actually a problem. You know, in spite of all the good things that God has done for these people, and, and, and to, not to mention how they have often strayed from his love, in spite of his promises, they have a problem. It's like They've forgotten God, and and not just God, but forgotten his power to change their life and the lives of their community. And so God does amazing things in spite of that forgetfulness, but Isaiah is called in that moment to identify and say, hey, People of Israel, where is your faithfulness? Where have you gone to? You're placing your hope in other things besides God. And I wonder, I can only guess, but I wonder if people just got fatigued. They just got tired. You know, and I say that as as one of us who have been negotiating this difficult season of lockdown, post-lockdown, re-lockdown, lockdown 2.0, you know, it's been hard. And people get tired. And when people get tired, they tend to lose their memory. They tend to forget the good things that God has done in their life. Even Christians like you and me. 
And so these Israelites had turned their backs on the journey that God had set for them, the journey that God intended for them, which was a journey of love and hope and joy and faith. They just got tired, I think. And what's even worse is I think somewhere along the way, maybe many of them just stopped believing. Has it ever happened to you? It can be really difficult. It can be really hard. But you see, this is a God who doesn't wait for people to reach the end of their life before he shows up. This isn't a God who just magically appears at heaven's gates when we die and meet him. You see, for us to believe in a God like that would mean to give up on the idea of his power and the reality of his awesome power at work in the world today, healing, bringing people to faith, showing people amazing things, how to forgive, how to know God's joy in Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, this is not a God who waits. This is not a God who stands by while you live your life. It's not a God who kind of tinkers from a distance and lets you get on with it. This is a God who intervenes, and he does it in a powerful way. And I have seen it, and I know some of you have too. I've seen this power of God. I've seen people healed in front of my eyes. I've seen people come to faith almost as if they were touched by angels and turned around. I have seen that spark turn on. I've seen reconciliation between family members. I've seen people forgive and be forgiven. And so the power of God is real for me and for many of you. But if you haven't seen it, it becomes difficult not just to understand it, but to believe it could happen to you or to a person outside this church. Isaiah says this is a God who intervenes. This is a God who sends his only son to be pierced for our transgressions, to carry our pain and suffering, and to justify human beings. To justify means to just set the balances back to where they were. to have a fresh start, to have a new and exciting future. And Isaiah is honest with his people. He says, you've lost your way. You've gotten lost in fulfilling your own destiny. You've come out of hard times and you've been saved, but actually you've given up in that. 
You just want to go back to doing things the old way, the comfortable way, even if it doesn't work. And I think somewhere along the way, I think they just forgot. I think they stopped believing that God had a direction for their life, that God had exciting plans for them, you know, that God was personal and loved them. What Isaiah knew and what he prophesied is that Jesus comes and he changes everything and he changes the past and he changes the present and he changes the future and he reaches into our past before we were born and he reaches into our future where he knows we are going and we don't. And he says, my hand is on you. My grace goes with you. My blessing goes with you. Stay close to me. That is the promise of Jesus Christ in our lives. But sometimes I wonder if we believe in this awesome power of God. I mean, do we really believe? There is a story of a city on a hill. In the year 1630, a man named John Winthrop is sailing from Plymouth in England to New England. On board his vessel are the Massachusetts Bay Colony, who are being sent to set up a new colony in America. And even as they are underway, John Winthrop stands and delivers this sermon, and the power of it is remarkable. It's been recorded for posterity. And in this sermon, he talks about the way that they're going to be doing things differently when they arrive. He talks about the burden that has been placed on them as a colony to live in unity. And not just for the sake of unity, but because that is God's will for us in this life. And in particular, he is addressing those who are rich and those who are poor, the haves and the have-nots, not as us and them, but as us all. And he says, we must stay united. We must stay together in this venture because our unity in Jesus Christ will determine our success as a colony. We live, we survive, we thrive together, or we die separately. And those colonists arrived, and they barely survived that first winter. Many were sick diseased, hungry. And John Winthrop's speech was something that they came back to time and again. His sermon about this city on a hill was what encouraged them in the difficult times. He says this, and I quote, We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community 
in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, his power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have ever been acquainted with. And he says this, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work that we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. What John Winthrop was doing was proverbially burning the ships. It was the practice of Greek commanders in antiquity to do this once they had landed on new shores and the armies would disembark, they would turn and lay torch to the ships as a sign, as a signal to say, there's no retreat. We move forward. That is the direction in which we go. To this day, Massachusetts is known as a commonwealth, not a state. It's known as a commonwealth because of people like John Winthrop who are committed to the idea that we live together in unity. And as a church, we do that in the name of Jesus Christ, that when we are called to the Lord's table, neither rich nor poor makes any difference. Neither those on the outside or inside makes any difference. That we come to him as one body. They knew that they needed to band together in the love of Jesus Christ, not just to survive, but to thrive as a community. And I think that is where God is calling us as a church. And unity for unity's sake is great. But actually, we're called to be unified in Jesus Christ. And what that does for us as a church is it helps us see outside these four walls of who Jesus is acknowledging out there. Say, hey, this person I'm bringing in to this church family, this person I want at my table, this person I want to be healed. This person, I want to come to faith. The city on a hill grows and it flourishes and it expands in the name and the blessing of Jesus Christ. And I really believe that it's because of this that we just can't stay still as a church. You know, we've already been forced to change by COVID. We're already a, a church on a journey because of this. And there's been so much change even before I arrived here. And so I'd want to encourage us that as we look forward, as we journey, that we understand Jesus's invitation to transformation, not just personally, 
but corporately in the life of the church as we look at mission, as we look at evangelism, as we look at what we add to the life of this church, who we're including, who on the outside needs to be included. And there are people I come across right outside this church who who may never have been in this church. I don't know. But I have a feeling that God wants them just as much as he wants us. Mike and Dan, who I met sitting on the back steps one Sunday, who were cheekily having a pint. They work locally, and the pubs were closed. They apologized, and I said, don't worry. I said, tell me, what's your vision for church? Or the lady who sits out here, on sunny afternoons, soaking in the light, or the guys who work at the garage across the way who I wave to every week. Dan, who is the young man that stormed out of a shop here not too long ago because of a racial epithet that was said in that place, and Dan is a black man. And then there are Darren and Lucy, who I met right outside those doors a few days ago smoking heroin, who were utterly ashamed and embarrassed to be found. And they were sick, out of money, cold, at the end of their tether. And who am I to say, but I just feel that maybe God wants them in here. What would that look like? What would church look like? If we said yes to people on the outside, I think it would look like a city on a hill. These are all stories that I think God is weaving together in the life of this church. And some change happens that we're aware of and other change happens that we deliberately agree on, you know, I want to tell you about these visioning sessions that we're going to do as a church family in the new year. And we're going to get everybody together over multiple sessions, which I and a few other people will lead. And we want to hear from you what God has been saying to you in prayer about the life of the church and where it should go. And in this way, we can understand together the challenge of change and transformation in the life of the church. I think that's so important. I believe that in the new year, we will need to say, as a church family, we believe we have heard the Holy Spirit. We believe he is calling us in this direction. And so we will go in this direction as a church family. But we will build to that. Finally, I'd encourage you by saying that God, Jesus, prays for you. He prays you through this process. He prays you through the personal challenges as we read in John 17. And even Isaiah says that God is our Father. He says, you, Lord, are our Father, and we are the clay. You are the potter, 
We are all the work of your hand. So as we commit this year ahead to God's work as the potter, we commit to being the clay. And we invite him in to build this place to be a city on a hill.